Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Brian Schmetzer, the head coach of the Seattle Sounders. We've had some great interview guests lately, including Arlo White, Matteo Benetti, and Emilia Lopez, along with many others. So check those interviews out. It would be huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. Now, here's my interview with Brian Schmetzer. Our guest now is Brian Schmetzer, the two-time MLS Cup-winning head coach of the Seattle Sounders. Brian, thanks so much for coming on the show. Grant, happy to do so. Happy to be on. Happy to promote the Sounders. Happy uh, just to chat. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. Um, We're recording this on Friday and coming out on Monday. So I know you have a game on Sunday, but your team, we do know, will be heading into the MLS playoffs. And Seattle has made three of the last four finals, winning two of them. Uh, You were there as an assistant when Seattle was a very good team, but not getting to the MLS Cup final. And... And I'm wondering, what's changed in the last four years? And, and, and what do you tell your guys heading into these playoffs? Yeah, well, I would start by saying, Grant, that, look, our, our franchise has been successful uh, throughout its history. Even back in the 70s and 80s, they've had some success. I think we went to a couple of soccer bowls and, you know, stuff like that. Certainly the MLS Cup championships are noteworthy. Uh you know, 2016, groundbreaking. You can use whatever adjective you want. Uh, if you ask some soccer purists, they might say in 2014, when we won the Supporter Shield with Zig, you might say that was our first real trophy. I mean, there, there, you know, there's a ton of different, you know, views out there as to, you know, which trophy is most important. But certainly, I am immensely proud of the fact that we've been in three out of four championships. And I even, if you get, if you get me going here and, you, and this interview goes a little longer, I can tell you about why I think 2018, when we lost to Portland, could have been the best team. You know, I, I was very confident, but Portland, you know, got us in penalties there it, uh, up in Seattle. But I think that the, the thing that has changed has just been, you know, the small little details. Look, in 2016... 2016, I'll give all credit to Ozzy Osvaldo, uh, Alonzo. He, he, he was the one that was driving that group as captain. I mean, look, you're, you're always going to get that new coach bump. Zig had, Zig had done a great job and, you know, the guys were just there at a point where it wasn't working anymore. And so I step in and, you know, Ozzy was, one of the leaders of that group that really said, you know what, we're, I think his famous quote was, we're not finished yet because a lot of people had written us off in 2016. We were like way down in the table. Mm-hmm. I know the, the story amongst, you know, the storyline for the Sounders has been, ah, they have these slow starts and they come on and they're in the playoffs. In 2016, we were really deep in it. And, uh, you know, we were able to claw our way into fourth place and, you know, Ozzy says, you know, we're not finished yet. We're not finished yet. And, you know, he was one of the key guys to get everybody to believe that we could actually do this. And so, you know, that start to my managerial career was, you know, hey, these guys are all pros. They're all very talented guys. 
I mean, we had a ton of different storylines. We had, you know, Zach Scott and Chad and, you know, we had Roman and, 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 and Nelson and, and Ivanchitz and Joe. I mean, we had a super team, you know, Nico coming right when at the same time that mm-hmm. I jumped on board, you know, Jordan's, you know, season in 2016 was tremendous for a young American player. And so it was kind of more just kind of steering them in a direction that I felt they already had it within them that they could achieve that. And, you know, that's kind of taken hold. I I truly believe that it's the players are the ones that do all the heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that do all the hard work. They have to hold themselves accountable. That was one thing I learned in 2016. You know, Mm -hmm. it was, hey, look at the guy right on your right shoulder. Look at the guy sitting in the locker to your left. Look across the locker room to the guy over there. You're letting those guys down if you don't do your job, if you don't, you know, participate here, because some guys, you know, weren't weren't participating. And so 2016 was a was a was maybe an easier coaching job. I just had to steer them in the right direction. What do you tell your guys next next week? I mean, we're coming out here on Monday as you guys head into these playoffs. Well, the message is a little different because you know, we haven't had some we haven't had great results as of late. And so you know, I've been asking them a lot of questions. Again, getting them to self-reflect on, you know, hey, are we doing enough in training? Are we working smart enough? They, our teams, the Sounder teams, my teams that I've coached, uh, they all work hard. Those guys never quit. I always say that in the press, but it's true. They, they, they work awfully hard, but it's the little details. Do we work smart enough? Are we doing what we're supposed to be doing on our set pieces? Uh, are we doing enough in our attacking movements? Does everybody understand the objectives of getting in the prime assist zone? And when the ball is here, where are you? And where is the ball going to come to? We need to do a little bit more in the, you know, tactical and thinking realm to repeat as champions, because yeah, the desire is there. The, the, the heart is there. The physical preparation is there, but it's super hard to win back to back MLS. I mean, it's unheard of. So we need something else. Now we're going to get back to present day before long here, but I do want to get into your history a little bit. You're from Seattle. You joined the Sounders straight out of high school. Your family owned a soccer store. Uh, Your dad, Walter, had a big impact on you soccer-wise. Could you describe the influence that all those things had on you growing up there? Yeah, and I'll actually add one more thing because, look, nowadays – when it's when it's youth soccer and you know all of that uh you know you have all these select teams and you go through these you know you got to try out and all of that sort of stuff another real key driver of my childhood was we started off my father you're you're correct he was a big influence uh he started a team when we were six and seven years old and that team the lake city hawks uh basically the same kids that were on that team at ages six and in, at six and seven were with us through U18. Wow. And those were the best friends that I had. And we, we had 10 originals. You know, some people moved away because their families moved away and, you know, they didn't want to play soccer anymore. They played baseball instead of soccer or whatever. But 10 original kids from our neighborhood, Little Lake City, Lake, Lake City, uh, all grew up together playing soccer down at John Rogers Elementary School after after school every day because that's what you did back then. We'd mm-hmm. go to school, 
you know, we'd walk home, put our books down, grab something to eat. We'd go meet back down at the playground and, and start kicking the ball around. So growing up in Seattle was, was pretty, pretty normal, pretty fun for a bunch of kids that just all like to play soccer. And then, yes, you know, I'll, I'll tell a story about how I was signed at age 17. It was because Freddie Hamill, uh, who was our best player on our youth team, got drafted by Alan, Alan Hinton and Bobby Howe. And then they came out and watched Freddie in a, in a league match when we were playing U18. And Grant, this could have been the only time I ever scored a goal with my right foot. Uh, <laughs> we were down at an at a old soccer field and Alan and Bobby were there to scout Freddie. And I was playing left midfield and I cut in on my right and I hit the ball with my right foot and it went in the upper corner. And Alan swears that that was the reason why he signed me because he was a left winger and, you know, he talks about his left foot, his crossing ability and all that. But uh, so that was kind of a, uh, you know, interesting moment where Alan, you know, caught his eye or whatever the sport house. I used to work in the back there, you know, silk screening numbers on jerseys growing, you know, my parents were first generation uh, immigrants from Germany. They grew up in post-war Germany, hard work, Hard work was always there and I had to get a job. I had a job since I was 12, you know, I had paper route. And then when I was a little older, I could work in the store. So I was thoroughly embedded with a good work ethic. Uh, and it was revolving around soccer, the sport house, you know? So that was, that was my upbringing. That was my upbringing. And then once the Sounders hit, I was a naive 17 year old and, you know, somehow I've parlayed a, you know, pretty long career in, in the sport of soccer. I mean, it's common now, more common for really good high school players from the United States to skip college. Uh, mm -hmm. We started seeing that more often in the late 90s, maybe with that Landon Donovan, DeMarcus Beasley group. Um, but when you did it, correct me if I'm wrong here, skipping college and going straight to the pros is pretty rare, right? It was pretty rare. But we had Jeff Durgan, uh, Mark Peterson, Jeff Stock. They were the trailblazers out of Washington. Jimmy McAllister, I would say. Mm -hmm. So a couple guys to go past or, or start the process. And then me and Freddie and then Chance Fry, uh, you know, Dickie McCormick, some of those other guys, indoor soccer those days, you know, uh, Billy Crook. I know I'm forgetting a, I, I'm forgetting a bunch of guys. <laughs> Apologize if I left anybody off the list. Uh, one of my senior moments, but uh, no, there was actually you know the state of Washington always had a sprinkling of guys that just went right out of high school into the pros, hmm. and it is getting more common these days. I mean, I have a 15 year old Reed Baker Whiting in training with us right now, and Grant, he's fantastic. Hmm. We've got the guys that you all heard about, Danny Leva, Campo Chavez. Uh, Ethan Doubleair, who started for me the other night, they were all part of that U17 World Cup squad. Uh, but we have some other players in our in our neck of the woods that are were pretty pretty good young talents. I'm wondering, and this goes back to when you were becoming a pro and and the Sounders of the NASL. Seattle has long been a soccer hotbed, and hotbeds have particular sort of characteristics is there are, are there is there something about the seattle soccer hotbed are there characteristics that you think 
are common there that sort of make it special? I don't know if there's anything special, but I can tell you just a story. Mm -hmm. Again, my uh, fondest childhood memories was going down to Inner Bay, which was where Seattle Pacific University plays. And at the time, it wasn't a small little stadium like they have now. It was just a grassy patch uh, over in Ballard. And I would go with my dad and watch him on a Sunday afternoon play in the ethnic leagues where Kenya, Germans had a team, the Italians had a team, the Swedes had a team, the English had a team, the Italians had a team, you know, the Argentinians had a team. And I would go and just follow my dad around and watch, you know, he, I wouldn't watch a game. Obviously, I'd be around kicking the ball around myself. But, you know, there was that type of, you know, soccer community there. That's, that was already in place, then I do think that it's, it's, and I can say this, I don't like talking about myself and, you know, I'll, I'll view it in the, in the frame of others, but I think we were all pretty tough kids. I mean, the Northwest might not be known to be the best hotbed of soccer, but you got to be tough to play soccer here. I mean, it, it's rainy, muddy fields and cold and you know, you, sometimes you just got to play and it's direct and you're fighting and you're, and nobody gives that enough credit. I mean, Jeff Durgan played for the New York Cosmos back, you know, back in the heyday of the eighties. And he played with Carlos Albertos and Beckenbauer and all of that sort of stuff. But he was a tough kid from Tacoma that didn't take prisoners. So he was the right match for some of those superstars that could, you know, Jeff just had to win the headers and win some tackles and then Play it to Carlos Alberto's. I mean, what a great job that is. He was, but he was tough. Jeff Stock, a guy that, you know, whose dad was a pro baseball player, super talented guy. Stocksy was hard. I mean, they 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 played the game hard. And and I think you see that. And, you know, it it it's inbred with people in the Northwest, boys in the boat. I mean, you could pick mm -hmm. a different stories. I mean, the Northwest has some hardy people up here. You coached the USL Seattle Sounders for years, uh, won trophies before the team went to MLS. And at that time, you had a construction business on the side. Uh, what was that like? How were you able to do both? Well, I can throw in my third job that I was coaching youth soccer at the same time. Mm -hmm. I can throw in three different jobs and tell you that my life was, you know, pretty hectic. Yeah. Uh, it was, again, just down to necessity. I mean, at the time I had, you know, my ex-wife and three kids and, you know, it was, it was a challenge. There's a, there's a, there's a lot of stories out there about success and negative stories about pro athletes in general, pro soccer players. What do they do after they're done playing? You know, I don't know if a lot of soccer players and especially in my day have the money just to retire and live off their earnings. So I needed to get a job right away. <clears throat> I had a good friend of mine that that we used to do construction in the side on the in during the summers when I was not playing soccer, and then that kind of manifested itself into a small remodeling company. And then my partner Dickie McCormick, you know, we started Sea Dog Construction, and we started building some townhouses right in the good good part of the market. Uh, Dickie's actually still doing that today, uh, but it was just a necessity. Grant, I mean, I had to, I had to make money. I had to support a family. So it was challenging, but I cobbled enough from three different entities to make a living. And then look, as it, as it crept closer to MLS, when, you know, the 2006, 2007, 
you know, when we were hearing about MLS and the expansion in MLS, you know, I kind of slowed down and, you know, knew it was coming. So it wasn't that hard for me to drop everything else because MLS was a completely different beast and, you know, it was big time. I couldn't do things, you know, three different jobs. I had to focus just on one. When Seattle did join M- MLS in 2009, you went from head coach of the of the USL Sounders to an assistant to Ziggy Schmid. Was that hard for you from an ego perspective? No, I'm a, I'm a pretty pragmatic, pretty humble guy. Working for Zig was great. Ziggy was really, really a good man. He was a nice man, uh, tremendous coach, uh, but he was a really good man. He treated people fairly. Uh, I believe that I learned not just, you know, from a, from a soccer perspective, but from a life perspective, lots of different valuable lessons from him. And so I had a really interesting way to kind of prepare myself for being a head coach because, you know, I would sit there and here I'd be coaching with the all-time leader of wins in MLS history. And I would always do this one exercise whenever Ziggy had to make a tough decision I'd sit back and I'd say, okay, what would I have done if I was sitting in Ziggy's chair? And so that was perfect training for me. And so I didn't have any reservations about taking that job because it was a great opportunity. And, you know, once, you know, me and Tommy, the holdovers, Tommy Dutra, our goalkeeper coach, once, once the, once the two holdovers from the USL team kind of, you know, after that first six months, uh, Ziggy was going out, these guys are great. You know, he loved Tommy. You know, Tommy is the best goalkeeper coach in the league. I certainly earned his respect. um, And we had a good working relationship for seven and a half years. When you did take over Seattle as the interim head coach in the summer of 2016, you mentioned a little bit about this earlier. The team was really struggling. Um, If I had asked you in that moment what you thought the chances were that you would lose the interim tag and become the head coach moving forward in future seasons, what would you have said in that moment in the summer of 2016? That's a little easier for me to answer that now. Uh, (laughs) I can confidently say, okay, yeah, I was going to be the coach, blah, 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 blah. Um, Thinking back to that time, Grant, I really didn't put much thought into it because I just put my nose to the grindstone uh, in the management of that particular team. I knew we had a good team, but you know, that's when we switched to the four, two, three, one, because I looked at the team and I said, okay, what are the strengths of our team? And I needed to find a place for Christian and Ozzy was a tremendous player, you know, and I thought that the combination of the two of them in that part of the field is going to pay dividends for us. And then, you know, the first couple of games we had Clint as a number 10 and, and, and Nelson, Jordan, whoever was healthy there. And Nico actually start out a right midfield. And I was so consumed with just trying to get the pieces all to fit together properly that, you know, I really didn't have a chance to think about it. Hmm. Um, I've always had a pretty high confidence level in how I manage people and, and see the game and certainly have did have success at the USL level. I mean, I had a great mentor in Jimmy Gabriel. I mean, we can go back to those stories, but he was a, he was a tremendous mentor as far as, you know, soccer and tactics, Mm -hmm. because when he became my assistant at the USL level, 
you know, he was the first guy to say, okay, Brian, well, why did you do that? Why did you do that drill? What did you see, you know, in that particular instance in the game? And he started asking me all these questions where I had to reflect on and, and give Jimmy Gabriel a, 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 you know, a super talented guy and tremendous player in his own right and coach. I had to give him an answer. It was a little intimidating at first. So, you know, when, when, when they gave me the interim job, yeah, I had some confidence. Yes, we could do this. You know, I'm a glass half full type guy, but I'm not so sure I was a hundred percent confident that I was going to keep the job. <laughs> this is a league MLS that is designed to create parody yet. Seattle and Toronto have been in three of the last four MLS cup finals and it could happen again this year. How has your team been able to sort of foil this pursuit of league parity along with Toronto? Well, number one, I think Toronto, Greg, has done a fantastic job. I mean, credit to them. Uh, if I had to compare the two franchises, you know, not just East Coast, West Coast, but a, a big conglomerate owning their franchise and Adrian, you know, a guy who's passionate about this sport, you know, it's his dream job. You know, it's a little bit different when you get into some of the nuts and bolts amongst the two organizations. But I think both organizations want to be winners. Adrian is immensely competitive. Don't let him fool you with the nice guy. He's immensely competitive. I am a meant that I hate to lose. I am firmly on the side of I hate losing. You know, I can I can manage that. We, I actually asked some, you know, when we used to interview all the college guys at the Combine, you know, one of my questions was, look, are you the kind of guy that loves the euphoria of scoring the winning goal and winning a championship? Or are you the guy that hates to lose a five-a-side in training? Which one are you? And that answer meant a lot to me because I'm, I'm on the side of I hate losing. And so, you know, it, it's, it's ingrained in this community, in the franchise. It's how I feel. It's how our owner feels. I think there's pride in the club. I think you know, I would have to give a shout out here to, you know, Gonzalo Pineda, Jimmy Traore, Precky. Uh, I'll start with him, my buddy from years ago. I mean, he's super competitive, you know, and he really, he's the antithesis of me sometimes because I've, I've mellowed a little bit and I'm more, <laughs> I think about stuff and I manage the guys and stuff like that, but Precky's still in their face. He's just going, ah, you know, we got to get this passing right. And, you know, your technique, you got to get your technique, your body position. What are you doing? And so he's competitive. Then Gonzo, I mean, he's fantastic. You know, his career, his playing career. I mean, every now and again, I'll, I'll find the, for one of my PowerPoints, I'll find the, the, the video of him with blood coming out of his eyes. It was a game against Portland, against Will Johnson. And just the, the look on Gonzo's face with blood and he's staring at Will Johnson. I mean, I bring that up because he's fiercely competitive. You've got Jimmy, who's a super jovial, nice guy, but he's a Champions League winner. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's in one of the greatest Champions League finals of all times. Jimmy tells a story about what happened at halftime there. And it's a great story. I mean, you got to interview him and just listen to him give you a, an accounting, an in-person accounting of what happened in that match, you know, down three, nothing. So I have a really super talented staff that helps drive this continuation of, look, this is, this is what we all believe. We all believe that we can win. We're all, you know, positive people, but we, we actually drive them. We actually push them to be the best version of themselves. And then, 
you know, the results, luckily, you know, knock on wood, so far have been good for us. That was actually going to be my next question was about Precky and Jimmy Traore and Gonzalo Pineda. And I'm just wondering, how do you guys, those are some pretty big names. How do you guys break down the sort of, you know, the tasks, how do you divide the tasks and responsibilities? Yeah, that's, that's, that's an easy one. Again, it's, you know, I'll give you a a synopsis, but you know, the, the management of people, you know, is, is different when you're managing a staff versus the players, right? So there's subtle differences there. Managing the players has come easy to me. I'm honest with them. I tell them what I think, blah, blah, blah. With the coaching staff, you know, sometimes it, it gets challenging because I want to be fair. They're all, they all could be head coaches, you know, they all could be head coaches. So how we divide up, you know, who's going to take this exercise, who's going to do this one. Okay. Today we might let, you know, Precky run the session or the next day it's Gonzo and Jimmy takes, you know, the individual guys, the back four over here. So there is a lot of management there, but look, they're all humble. They're all very humble guys. And so the only, you know, the only, uh, newsworthy or noteworthy things are just our conversations about players and tactics and how we see the game, because those can become, those can become heated because we, (laughs) you know, different ideas, but then, you know, once those are over, we walk out of the office and we're together and we do a really super high quality job in our coaching and, you know, it, it works. I want to ask this question and it's going to lead into a question that you know is coming. Um, Do you think that you guys, that you personally, that you, your assistants, do you think you've done enough at this point to be recognized as one of the best coaching staffs in the league? I will, I, without a doubt, I can, I can answer this one very quickly and positively. Uh, Gonzo, Precky, Jimmy, and Tom Dutra, along with Adam Owen and John Hutchison, who's our player development guy, that is the best staff in the league. Remove myself, place another head coach in there, place someone else in there. Uh, they are the best staff in the league. I, I, I didn't talk about Tommy, so I'd be remiss not to talk about Tommy because I'll tell you a little story what happened today. So today was a Regen day. We gave him a day off yesterday, and the first day back in was a regen for the starters. Well, Tommy was over there working the goalkeepers, and it's not a regen day for stuff. I mean, Tommy was just kicking balls, and he was getting going, and everything. And the guys that were doing the regen, their recovery strides, just striding across the field, were sitting there, you know, as Adam was like looking at his stopwatch, and they were just watching the goalkeepers train. And so I walk over there and I go, "That's what real work looks like." You guys are lucky you're not goalkeepers. You're you're not lucky you're with Adam here, not with Tommy. Because, you know, Tommy does such a great job because he pushes and drives. And it's, you know, Steph loves it because he's one of those guys that loves to push and work and and all that. So I don't have any problem, Grant. And I, I would argue with anybody that that staff, that group of people, Adam Owen is a guy who worked for the Welsh national team and in Euros and, you know, was a coach himself. He's a PhD, he's a PhD, he's a doctor. I mean, best staff in the league. John Hutchison, come here, put his head down, works the young guys just like we did in the old days, pushes them, pokes at them a little bit, makes sure they're doing the work. So absolutely, best staff in the league. We've started to see some discussion. Uh, Maybe it was connected to the athletic story by Paul Tenorio that came out 
last week. I had actually put this interview request in for you before all that stuff came out. Um, you haven't agreed on a new contract yet. You're in the last year of your contract. Um, what's going on? And do you think you'll be back in Seattle next season? Well, what I would say is that, you know, I'll leave, leave all the details to, you know, you can ask Garth, you can, you know, I, I have my agent, they can, they can certainly give you the details. Um, but I would say that, yeah, of course I want to stay in Seattle. I mean, I'd love to coach here until I'm done, but I'm also understanding that I haven't signed anything yet and it is getting late in the year. So that does, you know, it does, that does, you know, put some doubt in your mind at times when you're, you know, when you're thinking about your future and all that, but you know, I think something will be done. I hope something will be done. You know, the two sides we've been talking, you know, we started conversations, be fair to Adrian and Garth. I mean, we started the conversations in the beginning of the year and then the whole COVID thing hit and, you know, stuff like that. So when the article came out with Paul, uh, I thought it was a fair article. You know, it, it's, it's, you know, Greg was redoing his contract in Toronto. And, you know, like you said, three out of four, both teams. So we're kind of connected in that way. So I know it's news and certainly it would be bigger news if I didn't sign with the Sounders, you know? So, you know, that, that's where we're at. I, I hope something can get, I, I hope something can get done. Would coaching somewhere else besides Seattle, because you're so connected to Seattle for so long now, would coaching somewhere else be weird for you in particular, given your history with the city? Yeah, for sure. It would be way different. Um, the only two, the only two moments in my coaching that I could have a reference to. Uh, so when Nick DeSantis was involved with Montreal, he and I knew each other from the USL days. You know, I interviewed there uh, before Jesse got the job, before Jesse Marsh got the job. Uh, at the time, I knew Joey Saputo just, you know, briefly from our interactions in the USL days. And that one I was probably not ready for. You know, they were searching for what they wanted to do. East Coast guy, West Coast guy probably wasn't, you know, the right timing. But uh, Fernando Clavillo, my dear friend that we lost uh, uh, to, to cancer, uh, he brought me to Dallas before they hired Oscar. And look, he was very honest with me. He says, Brian, I, you know, I, I, I would take you, I would use you as a coach, but you know, we're, we're, we're after Oscar. So he, he kind of let me know exactly what the thing was. But at that moment, Oscar was with Colorado, a real chance that that deal wasn't going to happen. And so I would have moved to Dallas. I would have gone to Dallas and, you know, I trusted Fernando. He was running the soccer operations there. He and I were teammates back with the soccers back in the heyday back in the eighties. So I felt comfortable going there with someone that I trusted, uh, that was going to be my boss. So, you know, that, that's about as close as it got. And now, yeah, if I look at it, it would be, it would be weird. It'd be different for sure. We've had Garth Lagerway on this show before, uh, to be interviewed when Garth was having success at Real Salt Lake he would tell stories about his interactions with Jason Kreis, who was a guy he actually went to college with. And they were friends, but they, the way Garth described it, that things could get heated in, in, in some of their interactions. And they thought that was actually in the end, a positive for the team that they 
built and, and put on the field. And, and they obviously had success in Salt Lake. What's your relationship like? How would you describe that with Garth Lagerway in Seattle? Is it, is it heated ever? How does it work? And, and how do you sort of do that? Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I don't know if that is going to upset Garth or not, but yeah, sometimes it does get heated. I mean, I don't know if that comes from him and his lawyering background. I mean, he was a successful <laughs> lawyer and he likes to argue or he likes to prove his point or whatever. And I know I can be stubborn at times and there's certainly been some bumps in the road, but nothing that is controversial or what I would say would be, you know, controversial. I mean, we had some tough meetings back in, you know, back in 2018, 17, 18, you know, mid-season doldrums, how are we going to change the team, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, to me, those are those are things that happen. I mean, it's pro sports. I mean, you got to have your big boy pants on. If you don't have your big boy pants on, you know, you, you're not suited for the job. You're, not, you're just not suited for this job. So uh, Garth and I's relationship has grown. Look, when he first came in, there was a little bit of tension between him and Zig. Um, obviously, a couple of big personalities that got, you know, resolved one way or the other, you know, the start of my relationship with Garth was, yeah, okay, yeah, sure, I'm open-minded, Garth open-minded, we go through some tough times, we go through some really good times, so I have, I have zero problem and a ton of respect for what Garth does, I mean, his job's not easy, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm complaining about my job, I mean, Garth's job is just as hard as mine, I mean, he's got to deal with, you know, all of the business side of the sport. And right now it's a, it's a mess, you know, with the whole COVID and trying to keep a viable business running and, you know, all of that, um, you know, dealing with player contracts is never easy. I mean, having to tell a guy, look, we're going to cut your salary for next year or having to say to a guy, you know, look, I might not give you the bonuses that you want, but we still need you, you know, blah, blah, blah. Those aren't easy conversations. Um, he and I talking about tough conversations. He and I have uh, done this together consistently uh, year ending meetings with the players because it's important. Uh, it used to be Zig would take them and then they'd go over to Garth, but we've combined the two. Hmm. Uh because I feel it's important that I sit in with the general manager, president, general manager, and we talk to the player about whether they're going to be re-signed, not re-signed, contract stuff. And I think that's important. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, our relationship is a good one. And you know, I hope it continues. Just to wind up here, I appreciate you taking this much time. Uh, 2020 has obviously been a crazy year for everyone. What has it been like for you to coach this team in 2020? Well, it's obviously been a challenge for the staff. You know, I'll give one last shout out to people that deserve some credit. Uh, our medical staff, the, the phys physios, the, the, the masseuses, the, everybody that's, that's had to have three separate preseasons. You know, we had the buildup. We had the buildup to Champions League, which was a fail. Thank you for not bringing that up, by the way. Um, <laughs> Then we had the whole COVID and we had to reset. And then, you know, we had after Orlando, there was a break and we had to reboot again. I mean, Chris Cornish and his staff deserve a lot of credit. Our doctors, our whole medical team with the whole COVID, uh, we're super, super diligent here in, in Seattle. I mean, we are 
the messaging that goes out to the players is, you know, super intense. Uh, we don't want to just be lax. Uh, you know, our injuries haven't been bad. I mean, look, we took a couple injuries mid mid year, but you know, now knock on wood, uh, everybody's fairly healthy. Brad Smith is just the last one to, you know, just cause he hadn't played a lot. Uh, but everybody else is healthy. So that medical staff has done a lot. The coaches having to adjust to training players in a 30 by 50 yard area, you know, individual trainings. How do we come up with enough of those exercises to keep them mentally fresh? I mean, it's been a, it's been a logistical challenge. It's been a challenge for us as coaches to keep the guys, you know, mentally sane. I think, you know, you, you talk about, uh, mental preparation and all that. Uh, we played Colorado a couple games ago and I was amazed at the job that Robin did, or, you know, he did with his staff measuring all of the difficult, you know, all of that, his players just looked like they were so relieved to get back onto the field. Hmm. They took it to us that game. I mean, I, I just, I looked at the Colorado players. They were on two days rest and they were just so happy. They were running around the field. They were so happy just to play again. <laughs> so, you know, did we do a good job and how did we help our players through this, you know, really challenging time? You know, those are some of the things we'll reflect on and try and learn from for, for the future. Brian Schmetzer is the head coach of the Seattle Sounders, who have been to three of the last four MLS Cup finals. MLS Cup playoffs will start very soon here. Brian, thanks so much for coming on the show. Not a problem, Grant. Happy to do it. Happy to talk anytime. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Brian Schmetzer as well as producer Chris Whittingham. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.